This episode is brought to you by IT Revolution, whose mission is to help technology leaders succeed through publishing and events. You're listening to The Ideal Cast with Jane Kim, brought to you by IT Revolution. In this episode of The Ideal Cast, I'm so delighted to have on David Silverman and Jessica Reif. David Silverman is a co-author of Team of Teams and is founder and CEO of Crosslead. Dave spent 13 years as a U.S. Navy SEAL, leaving as a Lieutenant Commander, having received three bronze stars and other commendations. Later, Dave worked with his colleagues to codify and write down some of their amazing lessons learned to future leaders as part of that journey. Dave co-founded McChrystal Group, where he served as their CEO for five years. I am such a huge fan of this book, which describes how, in 2004, the Joint Special Forces Task Force in Iraq was failing to achieve their mission to dismantle Al-Qaeda in Iraq and what they did about it. Their work led to not only them achieving the strategic objectives, but also led to a deep and critical rethinking of almost everything across all U.S. military services and in commercial industry as well. Also with me is Jessica Reif, the Director of Research and Development for Crosslead, where she continues her work researching and codifying practices into the Crosslead management framework. She currently leads their education efforts, which have been delivered to over 20,000 leaders. I am so delighted that like so many of us, she comes from a software background. She was previously product delivery manager for applied machine learning and engineering teams at Oracle Data Cloud, where she had to solve the team of teams challenges in a software development and delivery context. In this episode, I was so honored to be able to learn more about the philosophies and thinking that went into Team of Teams, one of my favorite books I've read in the last decade. I learned about the truly breathtaking scale of the organization and management required to support hundreds of thousands of personnel involved in these operations and how it impeded the achievement of their portions of the mission. I learned about just how dramatic the changes were in the transformation described in the book. It is utterly amazing to hear about how and why it worked and being able to piece together the structure and dynamics both before and after the transformation. They talk about the leadership characteristics that are needed in this new way of working. I learned more about the famous ops intelligence update call, the famous 90 minute call that happened daily involving 3000 people around the globe, 365 days a year, and what was required to increase the tempo of operations by over two orders of magnitude enabled by breaking some pretty amazing constraints. And as a side note, it is amazing to hear Dave describe the events that I read about in the book, often with a sense of wonder, even 10 years later. This is part one of a two-part interview. You may notice that I asked Dave a lot of questions in the beginning to help set the stage and educate us on what the context of the book was. You will hear a lot more from Jessica at the end and in part two of this interview. Dave and Jessica, I'm so happy that you're both here. You both know how much I admire the Team of Teams book. It's been a topic of discussion in almost every one of these podcasts, but also within the broader DevOps enterprise community as well. So could you both describe yourselves in your own words and tell us about your involvement in the development of this amazing book? I'm super excited to be talking to your listeners today about this journey. A a little bit of background on on me. So I, I grew up a military brat really moving around because my father was in the 
United States Navy as an aviator. He had served in Vietnam and we moved around a lot as, as kids. And eventually I found myself at the Naval Academy trying to continue that legacy of service. And I really wanted to be a part of a high performing team because growing up, that's always where my passion was, was in sports, specifically water sports. And so I was fortunate enough to get selected and picked to become a Navy SEAL. And I graduated at this sort of interesting time in the history of uh, the uh, recent history of the United States, which is, you know, we've been in a, a prolonged period of peace and prosperity relative to the military services, you know, in the late 90s and early 2000s. And then after my first deployment, we came back and everything changed. You know, 9-11 had happened. And for the next, well, still going on today, really, but for, for me, the next 10 years, it was effectively just a nonstop series of operational deployments around the world trying to combat this threat of, of terrorism that had been manifesting for you know, a while beforehand. And so during that journey, me and a lot of peers who kind of went through this crucible of being very junior officers in the military and then sort of being baptized and brought up in this, in this new conflict had to go through rapid change and iteration. And we felt like that experience was pretty transformational but two, we our assumptions were that it wasn't unique to the military, that, the, that some of the lessons that we were learning on the battlefield uh, were going to be applicable to broader society and industry at large. And so that a group of us got together, started a company to try to translate those experiences into services, and then ultimately uh, try to codify that experience in the book, Team of Teams. Awesome. And, and Jessica, how did you get involved in this amazing effort? <laughs> Gene, thanks so much for having us. I'm a huge fan of the Ideal Cast and, and really excited to be here today as well. Uh, so I've been working with Crosslead for the better part of seven years in one capacity or another. Uh, like you said, I'm part of the research and development uh, org now. I, I wasn't directly involved with the writing of the book, Team of Teams, and it was actually well underway by the time I met Dave. But, but after the book was published, there has been a lot of interest from enterprises that really understood that they could benefit from a, applying our firm's methodology, Crosslead, which is a set of practices that reinforces the concepts of common purpose, shared consciousness, empowerment, and trust within organizations. So uh, this is really the area that I'm really passionate about. And my primary role has been to develop research-based training programs and practices that help teams work together more effectively in complex environments, particularly when they have to continuously adapt to change. This is so great. I am so, <laughs> I've been waiting so long to interview both of you. So Dave, you talked about your desire to go back and start writing things down. Could you talk about what the motivation for that was? If I understand correctly, you were trying to teach other junior officers in the U.S. Navy. What were the goals of that? Uh, who you, were you trying to teach? What did you teach them? And uh, why do you think those teachings were missing? Yeah, so l let, me, let me go back a little bit. So uh, to frame what's going on here, it's 2001. I get back from deployment in August from uh, a, a tour to the Pacific where primarily our mission was to engage and train in, in mutual bilateral relationships with allies to help them as they, you know, sort of advance or professionalize their respective militaries. We come home, I go out to the East Coast with my, at the time, girlfriend to meet her family and friends, and then fly back on September 10th of 2001 on the flight that the next day uh, crashed into the South Tower of, of uh, the World Trade Center. And so 
I get a, a frantic phone call at 6 a.m. in the morning from from her father, who believes we're on that flight, panic saying, where, where, you know, are you guys okay? Where are you guys? And that was the start of a pretty, you know, crazy time. So fast forward, it's, it's, it, the invasion in Iraq has occurred. I've come back from being uh, a part of that experience. And it's now about six or seven months later, I'm sitting in a friend's living room, my best friend, my roommate from college, and one of his mentors and and uh, you know, uh, Naval Academy graduates as well, who was a Marine. And this guy's name was Doug Zimbeck. And he, he asked this profound question in this room. And, uh, you know, to understand that scenario, if you're, if, when you train to go to war, you have this preconceived notion of what it's going to be like. And so really what this conversation was trying to sort of, you know, unpack and unwind what the actual experience was. And we'd had three very different experiences. In the case of Doug, he had just come out of the first battle of Fallujah, where his unit had taken 70% casualties. And it was, you know, obviously, a, you know, a, a very um, intense and life-changing experience for him. And he made this statement. He said, look, every generation in the United States history has served during times of need. And they go overseas, they do things, they learn, and they bring those experiences back to society to try to improve it. I believe fundamentally that this this war is going to be different than other wars. I think it's going to be a prolonged fight. I think the percentage of the population that's going to be engaged in it actively is going to be very small because I don't anticipate there being a draft. So it's going to be incumbent upon people like us to capture those experiences and translate them back into society and make it better. I was 25 at the time. I, wasn't, I was like, that's, that's heavy, heavy stuff uh, in the conversation. But that was the initial seed for what would later become Crosslead in the book Team of Teams. And so fast forward, it's now four or five years later, you know, we've now done multiple deployments to various combat zones around the world, all of us. And I get a phone call as I'm walking through the United States Senate offices where I'm told that Doug Zimbex uh, was just killed in Iraq. And uh, it was, you know, here was a good friend of mine, a guy that was, that was in my wedding. Um, obviously he was a, you know, a larger than life figure that had a profound impact on a lot of people. But we came out of that experience, I would go back to Afghanistan and when I came what home, what year is that at this point? This is now like 2009, 2010 timeframe when we got back from Afghanistan, Doug, Doug would die in 2007. Um, and we said, Hey, look, let's take this thesis that Doug had and see if we can't live up to this legacy of service and try to give back in some meaningful way. And the experience that we had overseas during that 10 year period, and it, to be fair, it's still going on today was was pretty transformational right we we came from this 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 legacy training and development program in the seal teams which was i would say tied to industrial warfare um, best practices and what we had transformed into was something much more uh, akin to an agile um, leadership and management best practices we, we didn't call it those terms because we I, to be honest with you, i didn't, I didn't even know what agile meant um, but what it meant was this idea that you were part of a larger task force that was tightly coupled uh, with a lot of interdependencies, and we had to rapidly disseminate and learn effectively in real time so that then we could apply those lessons locally to make faster, better decisions to, to combat our threat. And the enemy at the time was leveraging uh, significant advancements in technology for them to disseminate learnings, while we were still initially passing up key lessons through a very hierarchical bureaucratic information flow. And so we were at a significant disadvantage. And that disadvantage is where on an aggregate level, we found ourselves losing. And so when we made this pivot, 
to operating much more uh, analogous to what I'd say agile principles and values, all of a sudden we rapidly increased our rate of learning, which then allowed us to bring to bear all of our competitive advantages associated with technology, talent, um, and training to basically combat and sort of suppress this, this immediate threat of, of violent radical extremism that was manifesting in, in the areas that we were operating in. So that those lessons, our thesis was, were not unique to the military. The fact, the larger change that was happening in the environment was this advancement of how people fundamentally communicate and collaborate and learn uh, that was being enabled by mobile and social um, um, technology and media. And that if you could get organizations to think fundamentally differently about that, they could also have decisive effects on how fast they could adapt their operating practices to be competitive in an environment that was increasingly more complex or changing very rapidly. Uh, This is amazing, and I have uh, goosebumps for uh, so many reasons. If I understand correctly, uh, one of your media goals was to teach fellow junior officers. Can you talk about what you taught and who you were teaching and maybe how receptive they were to being taught? Well, I I would say while we were part of this task force, the immediate goal was to disseminate learnings across the mid and uh, mid-level ranks of the organization as quickly as possible so that they could apply those lessons locally. So in that sense, yes, we were trying to teach the senior NCOs, non-commissioned officers, and the frontline managers and leaders what was happening and how they could apply those locally at the same pace that they were changing. When we came and got out, our, our initial thesis was we were going to focus this predominantly on, one, validating that this, this, this hypothesis was correct. And our goal was to try to do that in industry because our thesis was, Industry had quantifiable metrics that would judge operational performance that we could we could attach this framework to, and we could demonstrate results. And if we could demonstrate results, then we theoretically we could take it back and try to address larger social opportunities and issues like like COVID nineteen. I mean, which I think is a perfect example of how um, the globe has been mobilized and should be thinking of itself as a team of teams and how they're trying to rapidly learn from each other on best therapeutics or best treatments or best vaccines that could be then rapidly disseminated to you know, hopefully save lives and, and restore you know, the economy back to safety again. Oh, uh, right on. And by the way, I, I believe so wholeheartedly in, in your thesis. So that initial teaching was really for the, the team of teams in the context of Iraq, later Afghanistan, the people who were embedded in these missions that were mutually dependent <laughs> to achieve the goals. Yeah, so, so, so to answer that more broadly, the, the original task force had a global mandate, but it was concentrated predominantly in those two areas that you talked about, Iraq and Afghanistan. And But very quickly, what we realized was that those two theaters of operation were highly connected, both, both from us, our allies, and also our, our adversary, with uh, the rest of the geography. So in this case, uh, the Maghreb and the Levant and other parts of, of the Arabian Peninsula were feeding funding, talent, resources into those AOs. And so if you're trying to go upstream from the problem and try to address it on multiple different areas, you needed to have a broader coalition that was, was mobilized around around the problem set. And so what initially was, was what we thought was decoupled, like well, what happens in Algeria is really irrelevant to what's happening on a daily basis in Baghdad became actually highly connected. When you start to realize that maybe there's 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 a madras that was that was radicalizing and then sending through this these what we called rat lines, you know, talent and money all the way that was then ending up on the battlefield in, in, in Baghdad. So, how do I get the people 
that are trying to solve that problem in Algeria on board and understanding the problem that we're seeing here so that they can take that out of context and figure out how to apply it locally. So that was the intent of the original process changes that we made was to say, this is the, the, the solution here is part of a larger network of, of organizations, countries, and that need to be mobilized around this problem set if we're going to solve it. No one person has the, has the piece of the puzzle, but if we can put all the pieces on the thing, we could probably start figuring out what this thing actually looks like. And then once we're aligned on what it looks like, then we can, then we can start to operate much faster, more effectively locally to solve the problem. This is so terrific. So one of the things that I've been so looking forward to is just really trying to understand the the team of team story through the lens of structure and dynamics. And, and so you may or may not know, I've, I've been spending this whole year really trying to view the world through how Steve Spear views the world through three simple things. The notion of dominant architecture. In other words, you know, there's a way of doing things that is very dependable, but very resistant to change. Then any system of work is really made up of two things, structure and dynamics. So structure is the way that we organize teams and the ways that the teams interface with each other. So it's most probably obviously manifested through the org chart, but also things that maybe aren't visible, which is the way that teams are allowed or incentivized to talk to each other or not. And then there's dynamics, which is almost wholly a function of structure. So in uh, the dynamics are about feedback, how quickly we get feedback. It's about the ways that signals are either amplified or extinguished. So when we have a culture that you know people are afraid to tell bad news, signals, important signals might get lost entirely. Uh, whereas if we are trying to elevate weak signals, signals can be spread throughout the system far faster than you know it could through any sort of centralized command and control system. Could you tell us about how was your Iraq experience relative to General Stanley McChrystal? In the book team teams, McChrystal said he wanted a different approach. What were the visible things that he did and enacted? What were the resulted, resulting challenges that he tasked his leadership and how did that cascade down to you? And Jess, I'm dying to hear also your reflections as an outside observer <laughs> you know, in terms of uh, you know, how you interpret this. Yeah, it's a big question, and it, there's probably not going to be an answer that that satisfies it completely. But maybe, maybe to give some context here, um, if you think of bureaucratic uh, structures or charts, I, I think the U.S. military sort of mastered how to make that as painful and as rigid as possible, right? So, and, and some of that's out of necessity because of the complexity of the operations and the pure scope of how they're trying to perform. So, if you if you go back to you know something like an invasion of of Iraq, you you, you have a geographic combatant commander who's responsible for a geography um, that is a four-star, uh, either general or admiral. And they have a mandate to basically operationally con- manage, control, fight uh, forces that are deployed to it from, in this case, the joint staff, which is uh, you know the higher headquarters at the Pentagon, which takes assets from the different services and says, these assets are yours to use with- within these constraints for this period of time. And now when a war happens, there's a further subsetting that takes place, means there's now, an, uh, in this case, a four-star commander put in charge of the operation in Iraq. He has or she has unique authorities and permissions associated with that theater. And then inside of it, you'll have a combination of conventional forces, coalition forces, special operations forces, and then a whole host of other uh, government organizations. It could be intelligence apparatus, it could be non-government organizations, you name it. So so the hardest thing when you first get on the ground, especially if you're a relatively junior officer like myself, was just figuring out where you fit in. You're like, <laughs> I don't even know, like, can somebody show me an org chart on where I fit in? So I understand, you know, what, where am I operating 
sort of boundaries and permissions and, and who do I need to keep informed? And it's, it's highly matrix and very complex. And I would say, uh, so we spend a lot of time just trying to, trying to, to, to sort through all that. And if you're relatively junior, you almost need like a experienced PhD to figure out how to map the whole thing out um, in, in complex. So when we got there, this wasn't unique. And traditionally what happens is, you know, if, if it's a predominantly a military operation, there's a military leader who has a civilian counterpart and they too work in parallel to try to, to, you know, prosecute the goals and objectives of the coalition and in this case, United States and special operations would be one of the tools that they're, they're given. Now in the special operations community, we had different types of special operations units. We had sort of high end counterterrorism, strategic assets, which in this case was being led and managed by the joint special operations command of which general McChrystal was, was the leader for more than five years. And then you had conventional special operations forces, which are usually designed to work, work train of eyes and equip uh, and, and help fight alongside coalition uh, assets and everything in between, to be honest with you. I mean, there's it, the, even to try to explain that the special operations community, it's a, it's a pretty diverse group. So what we realized pretty quickly was we, you know, you have all these individual tribes per se operating in this common battle space and somewhere, somehow it's loosely connected. But for the most part, their cultures, their processes, their decision-making rights were all you know, pretty siloed off, pretty isolated from each other. And what we realized was this wasn't going to work. We couldn't piecemeal a solution to this level of complexity. It needed to be something that could be much more um, organic and sort of how it operated and grew. And so very quickly, we, we, when you get to close to a problem, you, you sort of naturally figure this out, right? So if you put a junior person from four different organizations in the same physical location and you give them a similar mandate to say provide security, uh, to the area, they start to, you know, collab. Hopefully, collaborate, learn, trust each other through relationships, and informally start to operate more like a like a team of teams. The challenge is as you go up the bureaucracy, <laughs> those relationships are much more. I would say um, that muscle memory for how they operate is much more rigid, and so it becomes much harder to do that. And so, part of the goal of the task force was to break down. Um, that mid-level and even senior-level friction that was preventing us from learning and operating effectively as a as a group, uh, and so that's that was the big change. And even for someone like myself, who you know, by two thousand five six, I was managing you know a task force in Baghdad of of, of both Iraqis and SEALs and you know uh, other special operations components from the military. We had to then attach into other existing mechanisms. So th- so in this case, the special mission units that, that McChrystal was in charge of, as well as the conventional mission units that the other special operations commander had, as well as the battle space of the respective conventional force that owned it. And we were operating, we had a mandate to operate all around the, the country. So we would find yourself going in a different two-star command. So I could be working for an army general one day, and I could be working for a British general the next day. You could be working for you know, somebody else the next day. And so being able to seamlessly move in and out and, and keep things deconflicted and operating effectively so that we're all trying to achieve the same end state was, was sort of the goal, the objective of, of the larger apparatus was to basically remove those traditional roadblocks or friction points that existed that was inhibiting productivity against the, the common mission set. <laughs> Gene here. I want to pause here for two reasons. One, I want to just marvel at the vast complexity of the organization that Dave just described. Hundreds of thousands of people under a four-star combatant commander overseeing forces from all branches of the U.S. military services, plus coalition forces, plus civilian leadership. I'm reminded 
of a CTO summit that I had the privilege of attending that was held shortly after 9-11 by DISA, the Defense Information Systems Agency, and specifically the DISA CTO at the time, Don Myricks. It was such an impressive group. But one of the things I remember most was an org chart that Ms. Myricks showed. She said something like, you're from the commercial sector and you think you understand complex org structures. And then she showed a pretty typical org chart that we're all familiar with. And then she showed an org chart that was easily an order of magnitude more complex, describing so much of what Dave just described, but also included the intelligence agencies, not just from the U.S., but coalition forces, coalition partners, and so much more. It was really remarkable to me at the time and hearing Dave tell the stories about how he would be reporting to so many different superiors in such a compressed time period shows just how fluidly people like Dave had to move around the organization. And secondly, I think all this is so great because it describes the conditions in which the dominant architecture may not be able to solve the mission at hand. When the problem space is so vast that no one group can see all the pieces of the puzzle. When information must be shared faster than what the official communication channels allow, because there are no official channels between the components of the systems that actually need to talk to each other. When local learnings need to spread much more quickly and broadly than what current programs allow. And all of this is made urgent and important because the adversary is learning and acting far quicker than you. All right, back to the interview. So that was, that was a structure. Now we couldn't formally do a lot of this stuff, right? So if you want to say, Hey, I'm, when I combine this unit, I want to like create a new unit. We, we didn't really have that <laughs> ability to do that. So re- really this was much more on the second thing you were talking about was like the informal way that we operated. So it was more about establishing a series of values and principles that would govern how we, you know, we, we collaborate and communicate. And in this case, we tried to demonstrate trust by giving more information, quality information into a system that otherwise we wouldn't have done, which then enabled other people to kind of get some comfort. And, and that, that sharing, connecting actually started driving, you know, strategically and operationally where we were going much faster. And so the big, the big aha for me was, you know, growing up in a, in a, in a pretty tribal culture, used to be knowledge was power. If I, if I knew something before my competition did, and I don't mean my adversary, I mean like literally like the army guys, um, I had an advantage maybe getting the mission or getting the operation wherever else. Well, what we quickly realized, you know, you, and you can extrapolate that across like the CIA or, or State Department or whoever else. In this world, we said, hey, well, look, that's, that's really ineffective if we're going to be successful as an enterprise because we don't have, everybody has different pieces of the puzzle. Everybody has different authorities that allows us to operate. Everybody has different resources and tools and toys to play with, if we can figure out how to like put our parochialism aside and just focus on the outcome, more of a mission-based team, then you know we can potentially be much more effective as, a, as an enterprise. We get out of our own way for like so. So we really focus on those processes, those leadership principles and values um, that are pretty analogous to agile. It allows teams to sort of rapidly emerge and work outside of what I would say the traditional organizational charts framework. And that's when you start to get to me, massive speed productivity increases. Anytime you found yourself trying to justify yourself inside of a bureaucratic framework, you were, it was just friction that was going to slow you down, right? You'd say, well, this boss doesn't want you doing it because he's in charge instead of that person. You're like, well, ultimately, I don't really care who's in charge. You know, I'll give you guys all the credit. I, di- I just, I just want to be able to go do this. And, you know, and as a mid-level manager at that time that has, you know, I would say highly competent, qualified operators, you know, working with, that I work with, 
you know, they just want to go do the job every night. And so your goal as the leader was really just to sort of like make sure there was enough stuff to do to keep them, you know, sort of <laughs> focused because if they weren't, then, uh, you know, there's nothing worse than a bored Navy SEAL. They tend to, they tend to find trouble. Um, it's sort of, it's sort of inherent to their nature. So there was, there's a self-preservation aspect to myself as well in this. Yeah. Awesome. And, and by the way, just to maybe expose some of my thinking, I mean, I genuinely believe that it's, and no surprise that the people who your story, the story resonates most with are software people, because I think there's something uniquely, there's something very similar uh, in the experience. So one question before I ask Jess to re- reflect on this is, you know, if you were to compare the before and after McChrystal era, uh, what were the top differences that actually made a meaningful impact into what you were trying to achieve? The, to me, the biggest difference was how it felt. And so if you step back and you just went in and looked at it, what it felt like is that everybody was part of this, this larger team. And that regardless of where you came from before, you now self-identified with this being part of this task force. You could go to an embassy in, in London and you could hear an analyst talking about what they're doing, how they're contributing, and how they're part of this larger task force. Because the pace and the tempo and the people that, that the ability that people were now were connected into that on a real time basis allowed everybody to feel like they were part of something bigger than themselves. And some of those parochial, you know, legacy, you know, I would say identification markers, they were still there for sure. But you, you, you almost identified to this new um, transformational, you know, group of people. And it, and it was really magical uh, to be a part of it. And, and what was, what was also interesting is it was so diverse. It wasn't just the traditional, special mission unit tier one people. It was also all of the other apparatus that comes around that. And potentially it started to expand, right? So what we may start off as, you know, primarily just a handful of like what you would call highly um, specialized units. All of a sudden it started to grow to conclude conventional units and to control, you know, non-government organizations. Because we, the basic thesis was there is no person who has the full answer to the problem. And, and we need to like be humble enough to look for capability or perspective that we lack in order to basically solve this problem. And the problem was so dynamic and changing that you know, it was critical to do that. Let, let me give you an example. Like so, so like financing was coming through through you know banking systems. So like treasury, who like in my upbringing would I would never have anything to do with, <laughs> is now heavily engaged and evolved in negotiating with you know foreign governments and trying to s- slow down the illicit movement of funds between groups that were supplying these uh, you know our enemy with with you know, materials that were then having devastating effects on us. So just shows you how wide this thing became. And and what were the visible, I mean, if you were to study kind of the behaviors of upper leadership in, in that transformation, what were the things that you found most helpful to help create that condition that you called magic? To me, it was sort of a, a first a recognition that they don't have the answer, right? There, there is no, there is no silver bullet. There is no like strategic move. It was less about that. It was, it was sort of having the vulnerability to say, I don't know. And I need your guys' help to figure it out. And if everybody starts with that premise, then all of a sudden you story, you worry a lot less about where you fit into the system, and you just start trying to figure out like how do we solve the problem most effectively. And that became sort of sort of transformational. So, so the, the the leaders that were most effective in this environment that we found after like kind of like reverse engineering and studying this were people that took approach of trying to manage. Uh, like we we call them gardeners, people that manage an ecosystem where the main purpose was less about making decisions. It was more about removing obstacles and barriers for productivity and effectiveness. And those leaders were, you know, almost, they, they were naturally more like coaches than they were 
bosses because they were they were sitting there saying, well, I don't know, but have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Or, or I'm going to connect. Hey, I heard something similar from over here. Why don't, you, why don't I connect you two and you guys start talking about it? So they were really just trying to make sure the ecosystem, the network was actually yeah. working. You know, we used to have this saying that in order to defeat a networked organization uh, like Al-Qaeda, we had to become a network ourselves. And what intuitively was that was like put, you know, check your ego and your past history aside and focus on the task at hand and, and try to find insight wherever it comes from. And if I had to push you for two other sort of helpful behaviors in, uh, in the before versus after, uh, can you give me like maybe two more? Yeah, sure. So I, 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 I think being self-aware is probably the most important skill set that we see in leaders today. It's the idea that if you're trying to like move or affect a system of any type, understanding the energy, both catabolic and constructive that you're putting into that scenario and how that's affecting others is really, really important. And then the other one, was um, I mean, there's so many, but like the other probably two were we were connecting, which to me was like you have to inspire people towards a common goal and objective, and give them kind of a consistent path to kind of say, all right, to chart themselves to. And then the other part of that connecting is actually demonstrating empathy, the ability to like walk in somebody else's shoes, understand their perspective, because when you're trying to solve a, a challenge and people are coming at it from their own biases or you know or backgrounds. The ability to understand that would help speed up the process by which you could actually get to constructive solutioning, vice, you know, fixated on, you know, whatever pain or, or preconceived bias that you had coming in the situation. And then the last one was just discipline, right? You have to, you have to have consistent habits and patterns so that the organization can not spend a bunch of its cognitive load trying to figure out like, you know, how to show up or what to do. Because if you have those three things working in parallel, then you start to de-risk the environment for constructive criticism and feedback that allows for rapid learning uh, that's necessary. Gene here. I want to pause for a moment to compare and contrast some of the leadership characteristics that Dave and Jessica just talked about, both so far and later in the presentation, as well as in Dave's DevOps Enterprise presentation that we'll be playing for you in the next episode. They talk about as key leadership skills, functional excellence, ability to connect, self-awareness, discipline, decision-making, effective communications, and continually learning. I'm amazed at the overlap between this and the transformational leadership characteristics that we found in the 2017 State of DevOps research. Specifically, in that year, we asked every respondent 15 questions among five domains around transformational leadership. Vision, to what extent does a leader understand the grandest goals of the organization and to what extent can they get in front of it, not just to be relevant, but to help with the achievement of the most important goals. Intellectual stimulation, to what extent can the leader challenge basic assumptions of how we do work? In other words, just because it was great 20 years ago doesn't mean that we need to be doing it today. Inspirational communication, to what extent can the leader overcome fears, generate excitement, create coalitions required to overthrow powerful ancient orders, supportive leadership, and personal recognition. What we found in the 2017 research is that the bottom third of organizations with the least amount of these characteristics were only one half as likely to be high performers. Dave also just mentioned, you need to create an environment where constructive criticism and feedback can enable the rapid learning that's necessary. This reminds me of the Westrom organizational typology model from Dr. Ron Westrom, which also shows up in the state of DevOps research. Specifically, Dr. Ron Westrom studied healthcare organizations. 
And what he found in 2004 was that those organizations with the worst patient outcomes had these characteristics. Information was hidden. Messengers of bad news were shot. Bridging between teams was discouraged. Failures were covered up and new ideas were crushed. Whereas in the highest performing organizations, those organizations with the best patient outcomes, information was actively sought. Messengers were trained to tell bad news. Responsibilities were shared. Bridging between teams were rewarded. Failure causes a genuine sense of inquiry and new ideas are welcomed. In a conversation with Jeffrey Frederick, co-author of the book Agile Conversations, noted, the Western model is really about how information flows in an organization. Is information suppressed or extinguished? Or is information encouraged to flow? And of course, this brings up the notion of psychological safety. At Google, in Project Aristotle, in Project Austin, there was a multi-year study trying to understand what made great teams great. And the top factor was always psychological safety, as measured by to what extent do people on a team feel safe to take risks, to say what they really think, without the risk of feeling insecure, embarrassed, ridiculed, or even being punished. And that factor was higher than dependability, structure and clarity, meaning of work, or impact of work. I loved revisiting this work when researching the Unicorn Project. One of my favorite treatments of this was written by Charles Duhigg in a New York Times Magazine article called What Google Learned from Its Quest to Build the Perfect Team. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. All right, back to the interview. This is so great. Jess, I just made the claim that I, I think the software community, probably more than most that I'm familiar with, are especially receptive to observations and lessons like this. Can you just talk about that in terms of your own background and maybe your reflections on uh, you know, the changes required at various levels of leadership? Absolutely. Uh, so I, I would say that, uh, that I guess just stepping back for a moment. So Team of Teams uh, was a really uh, was a really powerful story, but it was largely an inductive analysis of one single massive culture transformation. And sort of what we realized in the in the process of uh, in the in the process of developing Crosslead is that there's so much applicability and similarity to the way that the special operations forces were operating and the way that agile developers operate. Some of the similarities are especially especially eerie. So, for example, the concept <laughs> of AARs in the in the Navy SEALs very very closely mirrors the concept of retrospectives on agile software development teams. So, so in general, there's sort of this this overlap in in that we have a collection of cohesive team units that are operating together but have dependencies on one another that are required to succeed. So I think that part of the reason why Team of Teams resonates so much with this community is that there's an acknowledgement of the pain and the, the suffering that's really associated uh, with all of those with all of those dependencies. So and uh, Gina, I was listening to your recent episode of Ideal Cast where you interviewed Elizabeth Hendrickson, and she was referring to a situation where the architecture had grown so complicated that that no single member of the team could could hold it in their mind. And I think that that is uh, certainly an example that that uh, team of teams really draws out the the entire nature of the conflict was so complicated that. Uh, complex that no single individual or team is capable of understanding it, and and as soon as you acknowledge that fact, you you've you've done something right for you've done something right for the teams. You've you've created a, a system where they really need to uh, where they acknowledge the need to continuously coordinate with one another, learn from one another, and understand how 
an action here is going to have impacts there and and understand how dependencies across teams are are are, are going to manifest and better understand the consequences of their of their actions. So I, I really think it's that self-organizing nature that resonates so much. So if I were to concretize some of the things I've heard, um, here's here's what I'm hearing. I'm gonna try to use the language of structure and dynamics. It sounds like one thing that is definitely clear is that the structure of the organizations didn't change drastically. The Navy SEAL still reported through the Secretary of the Navy. Army Rangers still reported through the Secretary of the Army. Uh, you know, there might have been some changes at the top leadership level, but it, in general, the, the configuration of the forces at a macro level did not change. Uh, and yet, what I've heard was that there are certain behaviors at the very top that help enable that sense of magic where that began with a sense of, I don't have all the answers. There is no strategic move that can take us there. And it, that invited a, a different dynamic of working and helped accelerate this very fluid, dynamic, uh, informal network that you assembled. What I would say is th- there were definitely some some structural changes that were taking place behind the scenes, right? And I would say those were operating on like three or five year cycles, like between like planning, the execution, the finishing, much like you would think about a reorg in a business. I don't think they really mattered though, fundamentally to like the, to the, 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 the operations that were happening like inside of a deployment cycle. Uh, and and those cycles could be three to four months, or they could be longer, depending on you know what team you're with and what cycle you're operating on. So so th- there was kind of both going on. I, we we me personally spent a, I spent time actually looking at both. You know when I was overseas, all I really cared about was getting the job done and being effective. And then when I came back and they said, hey, let's take a broader look at the organization and how we could think about you know officer career progression or enlisted career progression and and structure that's going to enable us to fight in the future. But those were part of five year study procurement decision-making cycles associated with the quadrennial defense reviews that the military apparatus operates under. But that wasn't going to have zero relevance if all of a sudden the enemy was doing this tonight and all of a sudden they were doing this tomorrow. And like, how do I reform and adapt to be able to solve this problem over here? We, we, we needed a, you know, it was going to be woefully inadequate. And so when I think about increasingly complex environments that are changing, almost as soon as the, the big structure change was finished, it, it's already... Le- much less relevant than the initial assumptions that went into making it. And so what I see working with companies over the last you know, 10 years or so is, is they go through these organizational structure changes because they're trying to find some optimal model for how they're going to be you know, like line block chart organized. And I'm not saying there's not value in that. I'm just saying increasingly there's less value in that. Meaning the organizations that I see are naturally unhealthy are ones that are constantly reorging because it creates such fatigue in the enterprise and and then it and, and distracts you from doing what you need to do, which is actually focusing on, you know, producing quantifiable outcomes rapidly based on changing conditions. And and so for me, we we spend a lot more time at Crossley thinking about how you work first versus how you're structured. And our assumption is how you work, you'll emerge to the appropriate structure. And if that structure is relevant for a week, great. If it's relevant for six months, better, I guess. You know, but but my experience is it's going to change. That's the only thing I can say definitively is like it will change. Yeah, and to add on to that too, it really goes back to the the analogy that you re- referenced earlier between the the chess master and the gardener. The chess master says, "I can look at the pieces on the board. I can optimize them in a perfect way for the situation that we're in right now." And that to me is the is the the leader or executive team who says we can solve this problem with a reorg. We can we can move the pieces around in the board and they will be arranged in the optimal fighting pose for the 
the situation we, we, we face today. Whereas the gardener's approach is, I don't know exactly what I'm going to need six months from now. However, I know how all these parts are going to have to have to work together to achieve any particular goal that they, that they set their minds on. And instead of focusing on the optimal placement of pieces, they focus on the optimal interaction between groups, which sets the conditions that they can accomplish anything that they set their minds to. This is so great. I, and, and to even concretize this even further. So what I'm hearing is that the successful patterns relied less on that kind of alt, you know, reconfiguration of the the chessboard. But another part of structure is what are the allowed interactions between the pieces? I just want to confirm, it sounds like before uh, people were not motivated to let armies speak to Navy units, speak to the intelligence agencies. The changes that did occur in that era certainly made those interfaces between those teams not only allowed, but encouraged them. You did a ton of things to actually reward people who shared information, span those boundaries. Is that, is my understanding correct? Yeah, it's amazing. I forget who gave the quote. Maybe it was like Mark Twain or somebody else, but it's amazing how much you get accomplished if, if, if you're willing to not take any credit for it. And, and I think that was kind of the underlying principle for us that were overseas a lot, because the, I, I will say that what was in, what one of the other unique aspects of this fight was there was, you know, we call it the away team. There, there was a group of people that were fighting very different wars over and over again, right? So they were gone for the better part of those 10 years. And so, and then there was obviously these systems back home that were maybe operating on different cycles or they were in and out. And eventually over time, you started to care a lot less about who got credit for stuff. What you really cared about was, could you accomplish the mission and could you bring your people home safely? And so, then you started saying, all right, well, like, look, I, I'm happy <laughs> to let you guys have X, Y, Z as long as we can get this done. And all of a sudden, then people's like defenses break down and they start actually thinking about the outcome. You know, it's this idea of like, you know, there's naturally division in the system and there was constant friction. And the most effective leaders were, were more humble and took a more empathetic approach and just said, look, it's not about me uh, or even this, this, this org. It's really about this outcome. And Whatever it's going to take to get the best team on the field, you know, with the best resources to accomplish the mission is all that really matters. Um, and that we didn't start that way, right? We didn't start that way. And, and in order to have the credibility, you had to have a lot of success, right? You had to have a lot of continued success where people say, you know what, like we're going to give these guys the benefit of the doubt. One of the interesting things when I when I was taking congressional delegations over to see the task force, the the, the commander at the time was so it was so important to him that this organization was not seen as wasting taxpayer dollars or looking like they had too many creature comforts. So everything was very Spartan. And you would walk in, and you would see plywood tables and like, you know, um, you would have nice technology in there, but like, you know, you're eating like meals ready to eat instead of like fancy stuff. And, and you're not in some palace. Everything was, everything was what I would say um, uh, transactional or, or, was, or was temporary. Because that is, we're going to move somewhere else sometime. And so you come over and be like, wow, like that's the room you guys sleep in. That's what you're using. What do you guys need? Like, we need more, the more ISR collection platforms. They're like, okay, whatever. That's give these guys what they want. They're clearly not wasting money. Advice if you went to like, you went down to the headquarters, you might be like having a meeting <laughs> in a palace, sitting at a golden linen table that used to be Saddam Hussein's. And even if that, you know, they're, they're, they're operating in the same mindset, it just looked different, right? It looked like, wow, okay. Uh, these guys look kind of comfortable here. Um, right? So if you went over there, like, well, these guys are clearly just, you know, they're not, they don't care about the frills. And the impact that had on our credibility was pretty profound. I mean, it was, it was pretty ingenious by the boss. And 
you know, when, you know, you got a lot of benefit of the doubt from delegations, regardless of what party they came from or their disposition on the war or not. They said, okay, well, th- these guys are credible, <laughs> right? Credibility equaled freedom of action, freedom of maneuver. And that was critically important to, uh, you know, us being successful. Gene here. Two things. I love this metaphor of the chess master versus the gardener. The chess master sets up their position on the board as the all-knowing strategist in the center who knows all and optimizes the entire system, whereas the gardener focuses more on the interaction between their own pieces and enables the desired dynamics, which allows for far more decentralized decision-making, sense-making, and actions, which is required to defeat al-Qaeda in Iraq, a far smaller but far nimbler adversary. This reminds me of something that Steve Spear said to me recently. He said, often when we're hired, we're hired into a specific role to fulfill a certain set of responsibilities within a static system. In other words, that will be my job, not just for now, but into the future as well. Contrast this to how people were onboarded into a new role at Toyota. There was no real expectation that they were in a static system. In fact, the higher you rose within Toyota, the more you were explicitly expected to change the system. I think this wonderfully supports the chess master versus Gartner metaphor that Jessica just talked about. And secondly, what Dave just said about credibility equaling freedom of action. This seems like a very important principle. So I'll just underscore it here. And this will come up in my second interview with Dave and Jessica in another episode. Okay, back to the interview. One of the things I loved about your presentation, Dave, is how you sort of divided up kind of the world into, I think it was through like three levels, right? Kind of executive leadership, middle managers, and frontline leaders. And something that is starting to, maybe a hypothesis that's starting to form for me is that kind of in these type of transformations, really the change that is most challenging is this middle management, which is super interesting because it alludes to the fact that we need executives to understand that there's a better way of working. But in the technology community, we have this uh, phrase uh, uh, that we use a lot as the frozen middle. Uh, can you scrutinize that claim that uh, you know the, the, the challenge of team of teams ultimately uh, is really a story about how do you kind of change the, the middle management? I really see four layers, right? I see like strategic level C-suite executives and decision makers, you see people at the bottom that you're calling your doers, the people that like have to get the, they're operationally connected to the outcome on a daily basis. They're just doing the job. Those are your frontline, your frontline operators and workers. And then you've got these two levels of management that sit between them, right? You've got a mid-level manager that are usually directly controlling and leading frontline doers. And then you've got senior management that are probably managing multiple teams of mid-level managers. And my experience is that your friction point is really with the middle two, the, the senior and middle level management. So, and, and the reason why it's, it, it's sort of intuitive, if, if you think about senior, the senior C-suite, they're what we call the good idea factory. It's usually their vision, their idea, their, you know, and to be fair, it's not probably going to affect their lives too much. They're not going to really have to do much. Um, I say that tongue in cheek, but, 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 but it's just the reality is they got other things to worry about. But by driving some internal internal like change, and then at the lower level, you know you're along for the ride, right? You're doing kind of what you're told. You may not like it, you may you may you may complain, but ultimately you're you know you're you're going to do you know what's needed, or you're going to or you're going to opt out, right? You're going to go somewhere else. So then you got these two level managements that really control the actions, and mid level management, in my opinion, are very practical, rational actors for the most part. And what I mean by that is they're dealing with daily problems that they're seeing manifesting on how their teams are operating. 
and they're they're trying to solve those problems directly. And if you they see something that can help them solve a problem more effectively or maximize an opportunity uh, more rapidly, they're more or less going to come around because it's in their own best interest to do that. So they tend to be a little more pliable, uh, sorry, flexible, you know, in their, <laughs> in their in their mindset on how they sort of adapt to learnings and changes, right? And usually the goal between those is just to get enough of them connecting and talking to each other so that the the, the learning is not happening in silos; it's just happening across. The the challenge, like we talked about uh, structurally before, is with the senior management, in my opinion, because they don't have the same incentive. They're not necessarily dealing with frontline problems; they're seeing problems that are probably more systemic, but potentially. Um, the problems that exist, they'll see maybe like a structural or a decision-making right as, as something that is, is personal or validating to their position or authority. And so their reluctance to change because it equals risk is much greater, right? So either they're, they're trying to get to the next level and if they make a big change, it doesn't work. They, you know, they're going to get penalized for that. At least that's the perception. And, or they're an expert in that domain. And if you change the way the system, they become less relevant and all of a sudden, you know, they, that, that gives them anxiety. So th- that, to me, that's the toughest layer because it doesn't necessarily operate with the same level of solution mindset as the mid-level. It doesn't mean it, it can't do that. I'm just saying like historically, when you see problems <laughs> in bureaucracies and you say, well, why are they doing that? When you put yourselves in their shoes, you're saying, oh, it's because this is scary for you. This, this risk is, is going to undermine your personal identity. And so I got to figure out how to like appease that if we're going to like get past this issue. So when we put processes in place, which was basically agile principles scale to an enterprise level, we were really trying to create communication and learning mechanisms that could hack those two layers, right? You could get frontline insights and feedback on what was happening rapidly disseminated across mid-level managers and not inhibited by some bureaucratic or decision-making bureaucracy that was being managed by the by the, the senior management. And then ultimately to the C-suite, it would start to affect strategy. I mean, one of my other big aha moments was being in Afghanistan. I was part of um, the ISAF staff and we had a, 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 a team that was solely focused on like writing the strategy and the vision. And one of these brilliant minds you know, kind of came in and was, was looking for a break. So he came into my, to my little operations center and was like, Hey, I have an idea. I was just bouncing around. And, you know, he, what he was trying to do at the time was try to take, you know, speeches or guidance that he had gotten from, in this case, the president, the national security council or the UN secretary general and their council and figure out how to like locally apply those to our strategy in Afghanistan and make sure that we were consistent with, with authority. And, what was so obvious in the conversation was that it was just it was just so out of sync. And what I mean by that was not we were like doing something different. It was the fact that like people in Washington D.C. could not possibly be expected because they were, they were so detached from the reality of what's happening in the battlefield to understand the dynamics of saying how do we integrate with the Taliban? What's the best process to do that? They were just so far removed. We almost needed operations on the ground were dictating what the strategy would be because of the, the rapid feedback interaction points we were having with, in this case, the local um, constituencies. And that needed to then go back and make sure it wasn't outside of the, the, you know, the values or principles that are put in the guardrails that are put in place by higher headquarters, but it, they were not going to be able to write a plan for say recidivism uh, locally. It was just not, it wasn't possible because it was, things were changing so fast. And so figuring out how to like break that down. Uh, I don't know that we ever did it, by the way. I think it was, you know, always a point of frustration in, in, in context, but having spent some time in a DC think tank 
and seeing some really, really, really smart people that have not a lot of operational experience <laughs> trying to come up with policy back here. Um, for things where you have a large data set, you can do that, right? I think if you say like, well, let's look at like Cold War dynamics with rational state actors that we had deep understanding with, you can come up with plans. But like for something that was as 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 volatile and rapidly changing as a counterinsurgency, it was to me the operations on the ground were going to start driving what the options were from a strategic level. Uh, and uh, yeah. by the way, it just reminds me of a story of uh, in London uh, in the 1600s, they were essentially planning the entire Georgian economy, <laughs> right? From, you know, thousands of miles away with no knowledge of soil conditions, water levels, right? <laughs> it sounds like a very similar problem. Yeah, it wasn't quite that bad, but but but, <laughs> but, but yes. I mean, it, it, it was this idea that really like what we found was operations sort of driving intelligence, right. not the other way around. Oh, so that is very, very interesting. We are so much looking forward to the DevOps Enterprise Summit Vegas Virtual, which will now be held on October 13th to the 15th. As always, the goal of the programming committee is to bring you the best experience reports and to outprogram all our previous events. And this year, we expect to deliver on that promise again. I am so excited about the speaker lineup we have for you, partly because they are among the most senior technology and business leaders that have spoken at this conference, showing you how important the work of this community is. Maya Liebman is CIO of American Airlines, who presented at our annual forum in April, and we were fascinated by the perspectives that she shared with us. I'm so excited that she will be co-presenting with our longtime friend, Ross Clanton, about the American Airlines journey. And since 2014, we've all been dazzled by the CSG journey, as told by Scott Prue and Erica Morrison. I am so thrilled that this year, Scott Prue will be co-presenting with his boss, Ken Kennedy, Executive Vice President and President of CSG, the largest provider of customer care, billing, and order management in the US. Ken and Scott will be sharing their story on the interplay between business and technology leadership and how it resulted in their amazing accomplishments over the years. This is just the beginning. Stay tuned for more exciting announcements about our amazing speaker lineup. This will undoubtedly be the best DevOps Enterprise Summit program we've ever put together. You can find more information at events.itrevolution.com slash virtual. So Jess, I mean, can you react to that notion about senior management? I mean, I just uh, as Dave was talking about, I, talking about this, you know, I was <laughs> laughing because I think that we see so much of that, maybe to use kind of the this language, right? This really, they really do represent the dominant architecture and often they're put in a position where I think they're, they're often asking, what is my role in it? And so how do you overcome, <laughs> can you validate that? How do you overcome yeah, that? Fear? Yeah, absolutely. So I think Dave's point and your point on the the frozen middle is is very much a valuable one because the frozen middle is the, is the group that has to say, if there's going to be a major change ever, they're the one that has to come to terms with what got me here will not get me and my team there. So they're the ones that really have to implement a change. It's really easy for a, a leader to stand in front of a podium and say, we're going to deploy 10 times a day because they have to deploy zero times per day. So it's it's uh, there's really no change for what they're going to have to they're going to have to do by making that demand or strategic change whereas at the more uh, at the at the more middle manager or uh, senior manager layers of the organization they are going to have to change they're going to have to change what they're what they're holding their teams accountable for I think it's a quote by Do- dr. Henry cloud uh, you get what you tolerate and those are those are the layers that are going to either be uh, those are the layers they're setting the standards that so if they're 
tolerating, you know, deploys twice a deploys twice a quarter. That's what they're going to continue to to get. So it's really that group that has to that has to change their mindset. And uh, we we see the same thing a lot with with agile transformation. We'll hear of an executive that has that has heard, oh, digital revolution. This is the this is the way this is the way forward. We're going to pivot our business to be much more digitally focused and customer centric. And and while all of those things sound really good, they don't necessarily have an immediate ramification for the for the executive. They have immediate ramifications for those middle managers, which is who really needs to to, to buy in to drive the change. And, and what concrete advice would you give to someone who is uh, asking that question, a senior leader who is asking, you know, what is my place in this new system? You know, if teams get to define the work, define how it's done, um, <laughs> you know, if, uh, just specifying their own work. I mean, what? And, and they're left with the question, like, what else is there left for me to do? Uh, what, what what do you tell them? Right, right. So I, I mean, the the two pieces of advice that that I would give would be one: focus on the vision and making the vision as crystal clear as as possible. And there's uh there, there's some really good research from Professor Drew Carton at the Wharton School who published a paper on how the the techniques used by NASA and specifically President Kennedy to uh, in the 1960s before the moon landing to really just establish a visual image. You know, it's not just we're gonna we're gonna pursue the new frontier of space, but we're going to land a man on the moon, and you can close your eyes and you can picture what that experience is going to be and what it's going to look like. And I think that the the role of those senior leaders is to help create that mental image for the network of teams uh, that that they're responsible for of what success looks like and make it something so crystal that they can close their eyes and that they can picture it. The second I would say is really just setting the the conditions for the teams to interact and operate as as fluidly as possible. So in in a lot of cases, that's addition through subtraction. Uh, The senior leaders are often the ones that can remove rules. They can remove uh, rules and barriers. They can improve funding for tools that are going to help teams work better together. Uh, so really recognizing what those opportunities are to reduce barriers that make it hard to, to interact across teams and taking advantage of the leader's authority to, to remove those roadblocks. Yeah. And just to, to build on what Jess is saying, from a mindset standpoint, because she's 100% right, I go back to servant leadership fundamentally as the mindset that you need to have in, in today's environment, which is it's not about you. It's really about how do you position your people to have be successful. And anything you can do to remove those obstacles and barriers that Jess just talked about, whether it's like meetings or bureaucracy or, or pain or friction, that's really what's about. Your job is to be a steward that allows your people to be successful. And if you're doing your job well, it's really about them. And so, if you, if, and if you're struggling with, well, why I'm giving up, you're, you're already in the right, fr- wrong frame of mindset, <laughs> in my opinion. You're already think you're already thinking about yourself and what's right for you, vice what's right for your team. And in my my experience is, if as a leader, your job is to take care of your people, you know, and if you do that consistently, what you, you typically happens is your people shock you and surprise you of how awesome they perform, which then reflects very well on the culture that you've established as a team uh, that, that it makes. And so, and I think that's ultimately that, that becomes, you're the, you're the glue culturally for the organization that enables to be successful. And that's the magic. Cause if you take that away and you put something else in the whole thing starts sub-optimizing. And so it's just sort of redefining the success metric and how you evaluate performance for senior management and you change the incentive model. I mean, I think where, where organizations struggle 
Um, and I don't know that it's, I don't think it's specific to software engineering, but like financial services is a great example where, you know, traditionally you get promoted because of your ability to basically manage a P&L and, and make tactical decisions and assume and take on risk. But increasingly, as you get bigger, if you're trying to create a sustainable organization, that matter, that should matter a lot less, right? Uh, it's other people that have to be able to do that and do that effectively. And you're basically sitting there trying to big work. And so that's how you create a legacy. That's how you create an enduring organization that's going to be successful and, and resilient. And looking back at your in your military days, was there a senior leader that you think would just epitomize the change that uh, you would wish upon other people who, who, here's a person who felt like that and had an aha moment and started acting and behaving different ways that led to a bunch of incredible successes? Yeah, it, I mean, there's 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 tons of examples. I was very fortunate to work with just some incredible talent over the years for me personally. But th- the ones that always stuck out in my mind were actually those non-commissioned officers. It was these chiefs and these leading petty officers over the units that you know th- they they were tactical experts at what they did, right? So they were they were probably better suited than 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 most to say no, this is the right way to do something or not. But if we were going to get any type of scale or effectiveness, they had to turn into a in, into really a mentor and a coach figure. And they had that incredible depth of experience. But when they modeled that behavior, that's when we started to see tremendous effects at a localized level on productivity increases in productivity. Because you'd have relatively junior or new people who are now being empowered because some of those, their senior managers, in this case, they're, they're, those, those chief petty officers, those senior chiefs, those NCOs are set in conditions for them to basically operate you know, uh, more effectively um, as individuals. And that's when, that's when the whole thing unlocked. And my, my job really was to stay out of the way, right? I mean, if you're doing, if you're doing well as the officer, you're really just trying to say, Hey, does the chief chiefs really call on the shots on the, on the objective anyways, that, you know, they're, they're the ones that, that, that you got to listen to when, when, especially when things are chaotic and you're just trying to basically manage the whole operation and make sure that it's, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's inside the boundaries of success. So that was my experience. It was like, I can think of a couple of individual names. I won't give them uh, just in the interest of their own uh, security and stability. But but those leading petty officers, those chiefs that I was fortunate enough to serve with overseas, almost without question, were my heroes. And so these are people with decades in the service, if I understand. Yeah, they, 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 I would say the average tenure for a chief petty officer is somewhere between. I mean, the earliest you can make chief if you're screaming up the ranks is probably eight or nine years. And you know, usually these guys are 10, 15, 20 years of operational experience at this point. And so. They've forgotten more that as a as a junior or mid level officer that you'll ever learn. So uh, this is fantastic. So maybe uh, let's leave the domain of sort of highfalutin <laughs> you know uh, theory and and go into actual practices. One of the things that uh, you've talked about a lot, Dave, was a uh, one specific thing that you had, if I remember correctly, it was like this global daily call, uh, thousands of people on the call around the world in, in this very informal network. Can you talk about what that call was? What were the specific objectives and what would might distinguish a, a great call from a mediocre call, a productive call versus an unproductive one? Yeah. So we, we called it the, um, the name of it overseas was the Ops Intelligence Update. It was, we chronicalized it pretty specifically in, in the book team and teams. W- what it was fundamentally was it started off as a staff meeting between the senior commander and his immediate staff. It would take place between the forward headquarters and the rear headquarters, right? And it was basically them to stay synced and just deconflict on what was going on. It was like a daily meeting. It was probably 15 to 30 minutes and there was probably 10 or 15 people in it. But as, as we started to evolve as an enterprise, what we realized pretty quickly was that at the senior level, we had these insights and what was happening because we could see across domains and start to start to put together a picture. And what we realized that we were losing, we were fighting individual wars 
uh, that we were winning locally, but on the aggregate, we were, if we were losing. And at the local level, you know, you're, you're running your own operating mechanisms and your, your own critical earnings, but you feel pretty detached from, say, a, a similar unit in a, you know, in a different geography, in the, in, even in the same battle space like Iraq or, you know, forget about if it's something like the Philippines or, or Northern Africa or something, right? Like you're like, well, the, our missions are just totally different. So there's really nothing to learn right now. And so what we saw was this gap of information change. So what we did was you said, we need to start opening up this meeting to sort of break down those natural bureaucratic layers in the organization and start to connect dots between them. Because the way we're disseminating information now is local unit discovers something, writes a report, it goes to a, a higher headquarters, it goes to another <laughs> higher headquarters, it goes to another higher headquarters. It goes back to a training command, gets institutionalized into training, maybe trains a unit and they come back over. So it was like a, the learning cycle was like effectively like, like five eight, years. Yeah, like right. 18 months. Yeah, it was slow. <laughs> now, locally, you were learning quick. But uh, the cycle between units was 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 really was relatively slow. Obviously, that would get accelerated if it was something catastrophic because that you would speed up that chain. But I would say on aggregate, it was it was it was pretty slow. And even the special mission units that were on uh, shorter rotation cycles, theirs was still probably nine months long. Right, it was still way woefully inadequate. So we we put this meeting in place with the main idea saying, "Hey, uh, it starts from a position of humility. We don't know what we don't know." And we know that this problem is bigger than like what Jess was talking about earlier that we can like wrap our mind around. So we just need to find a way in a discipline structured format to share critical updates on what's happening and then look for patterns, right? Look for themes or concepts that are applicable, not just in one geography, but in others. And, and that became kind of the art to it. And so we had this mechanism every day to rapidly cross level key insights from the night before and, and that way you could then, you're disseminating those learnings by centralizing them uh, effectively across the larger task force so that then locally I could then say, all right, I'm going to take this thing I just heard and maybe either go do subsequent conversations offline with that group, or I'm going to, or I'm just, I think I have what I need, the context I need to make, to make localized decisions. The other benefit was, uh, was if the organization need to pivot, right? So now it's not just about a learning, but it's like, we got to, we got to go from this to that for some reason. Well, in the old days, that would be a, that's like moving an aircraft carrier. You're talking about like <laughs> 20,000 people, you got to shift their mindset around something. And you, you play the telephone game of, of information <laughs> dissemination. By the time the message gets down to the lower unit, in our case, a pretty big bureaucracy spread across you know, a lot of different time zones and geographies. It, it, all they hear is, yeah, we got to do the same thing we did last night. Okay, got it. <laughs> right. They, they're like, there's, there's, <laughs> so now all of a sudden you had a vehicle in place because this meeting became, you know, every day for 90 minutes and it had, you know, thousands of people on it daily across every time zone. Now it became a mechanism where you could rapidly disseminate like not just learnings, but also intent, right. Yeah. And, and understanding like, or, the, or, the, or like a shift in principles and values. And so it could move the organization much faster that, that way as well. So I heard one more sort of aspect of structure there, which is that it almost became your participation in that meeting uh, gave you an interface to everyone else so that if we need to create a sub-team or whatever, you could quickly kind of marshal up a group, the common interest, and actually act upon it as opposed to waiting for the percolate <laughs> through the through the. That's right. Uh, it gave you the it gave you the closest thing you could get to as a mid-level leader in the organization to visibility of the, the entire network. You could sit there and go like, oh, I didn't know those guys were working on that. Right. And I have that same need down here. And, and especially when it came to interacting with the interagency, 
right? I mean, there, there were, you know, I had my own informal networks with, with my peers that were in other parts of the battle space that, so I could call if I really, you know, wanted to bounce that. But like the idea that I would go be dealing with a CIA agent who had been looking at this target set that I happened to be like just shifting onto like this night that they've been looking at for five years, like before my access and availability to them was like, first of all, I didn't think I had authorities to do that. And two, I wouldn't know where to start to look. Now all of a sudden I can see that. And one of the things that the, that the leadership did is they sort of gave us permission to sort of collaborate informally. And they kind of left it up to us to say, well, if you're already a part of this task force, we're going to give you the benefit of the doubt. We'll, we'll, we'll start sharing because that behavior is being modeled above us. Mm-hmm. And so it sort of gave us the freedom of action to do it down low. And so that sort of sped things up. Because um, the, the, big, the big constraint in this whole thing was, was information control, right? The idea that like, I, I, I don't, this is not appropriate to be disseminated to a larger power base. I see this in companies all the time. They go, well, this is proprietary non-public information that if it got out would be you know, a violation of SEC compliance rules or laws or potentially give our competition you know, advantage. And, and, and I, I just, I, it's, it's almost like the cure is worse than the disease then, right? Because right? Right. you're like, okay, well, we're not going to tell anybody anything, but then how they expect you to do anything. Right. So, you know, we had a bias towards speed and, and transparency. Yeah. So to, to pile on to that, as far as practices that we've seen that were outlined in team of teams that we've seen wide adoption with, with our, with our clients and, and uh, those that we've connected with over the years. So we, dozens of companies at this point are doing something really similar to the operations and Intel update. Admittedly, we haven't, we haven't, uh, sold anybody on a 90 minute meeting that takes place 365 days a year. But what we, what we do see a lot of is, uh, companies that are doing a 30 minute meeting, whether it's every day, every other day, two days a week, uh, where they are sharing those, those critical updates. And, and Gene, you, you'd asked about what specific characteristics are, uh, are what the specific characteristics are of a, of a good meeting and, and one that's bad. And some that, some that we've observed specifically are one, just that uh, as a good characteristic, it's one, uh, the meeting creates dependency awareness. So the stakeholders go to the meeting and they learn something about how what they're working on relates to to how some uh, something that somebody else is, is working on. The meeting forges connections between between group members. So uh, perhaps if, if the three of us were, were on, uh, on a meeting and I learned that I have a dependency on, on Dave, who has a dependency on Gene, then the three of us can have a, a, a short sync after the, after the more formal meeting to, to, to coordinate with one another. And then as an outcome, we see that these meetings are actually very effective in reducing other meetings because otherwise mm-hmm. perhaps I would have a standing meeting with Dave and a standing meeting with Gene. And what the, what the group sync allows us to do is reduce all of those other standing meetings to one that is uh, collaborative and and shared across teams and where we're able to just uh, perhaps do a a quick meet after on the high level things that are relevant for that particular week. Uh, As as far as when we've seen these meetings go awry, I would say that the two areas are are when, uh, (laughs) when the meeting becomes just strictly updates that could be communicated better via some other forum, whether it's email or Slack. So if if people are sitting in the meeting and they feel this this could have been an email, then that's obviously a that's obviously a very bad sign. And then the second is when it becomes a point to point conversation between 
uh, perhaps to <laughs> the attendees about uh, a specific specific challenge or, or uh, dependency that they're that they're they're facing. So the the role of the leader in those meetings is really to make sure that those that those bad things are are not happening and to, to maximize the the good things. And I, I would say that the sort of outcome metric that we see as wow this 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 is really working well is when you see people that are voluntarily opting into the meeting that aren't required to attend because it becomes such a valuable source of information that by by missing it they feel like they're missing out on something that's really important and valuable. Jean here. I love what Jessica just mentioned. She's saying that a critical job, especially for middle managers, is to be able to create concrete manifestations of the vision. In my last episode with Mike Nygaard, I talked about having just read Gene Krantz's amazing book, Failure is Not an Option. I learned that the Apollo 9 mission was actually a bit of a Hail Mary. The goal was to pull in the timeline in order to achieve President Kennedy's goal of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely back to Earth by the end of the decade. It was breathtaking to read about all the risks involved, but their philosophy was high risk, high gain. Under enormous pressure, in 1969, they eventually came up with a plan that they had sufficient confidence to achieve the mission as set forth by President Kennedy back when he was still alive, back in 1962. Jessica mentioned a paper by Dr. Andrew Carton and Dr. Brian Lucas. The paper is called, How Can Leaders Overcome the Blurry Vision Bias? Identifying an Antidote to the Paradox of Vision Communication. I will put a link to this paper in the show notes. That's super interesting. And, and so and so I'm just trying to apply, you know, just kind of create the word cloud of what's actually going on here. So I mean, I hear a lot of what you uh, just talked about, Jess, uh, sort of like marshalling, deconflicting, just awareness of dependencies. Uh, but something I also heard was uh, sort of initiation of new actions, right? It's like, I just heard something. I'm going to go find some uh, people with a common interest and I'm going to marshal a group together that didn't exist before uh, with a potential creation of a new short or medium-term objective. I'm, I'm actually forming a new coalition or a new group. Uh, I just want to confirm my understanding there. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, a new group forms, and whether it's just for 15 minutes to to talk about the specific thing that came up during the meeting, or it could be longer term that two, you know, perhaps two teams realize that they're working on really similar, uh, they're working on something that's really similar, and maybe there are components they could share, or maybe that there's something that they can do to mutually make each other's lives easier. Awesome. And, sounds like, and the, one of the things that really caught my attention was a, a, a dynamic that actually led to people actually wanting to opt in. Dave, it sounds like the old behavior was knowledge is power. I'm going to hoard it. And uh, every piece of knowledge that I have and that you don't have, I can use to my advantage and your disadvantage. <laughs> and somehow this inverted it, that this call created a mechanism that rewarded knowledge sharing. Can you talk a little bit about that, and or even validate that that was a dynamic? Yeah, that 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 was that was a dynamic. I mean, the reason the, to Jess's point that when you know it's going well is when you have that mid-level management layer opting in voluntarily um, because you can't really at that scale force them or hold them accountable to showing up when they're opting in on their own uh, on their own volition. And the reason why they would do that is because there are insights that you can gather that you couldn't get anywhere else. So for us, the the currency for operations was heavily correlated to certain critical assets that were that were in high demand, like helicopters or like uh, collection platforms or like uh, close air support. And so mm-hmm. inevitably there would have to be prioritization decisions made at the, at, the, at the operational level, right? Where they would say, hey, these are where these assets are going. You would see that in that meeting. And then you have a sense of, okay, I now know where the, the cards are being dealt for the night and I can now start horse trading 
with yeah. uh, with with local battle space commanders that have those assets to try to unlock potential latent productivity uh, that that might exist. And so we would then establish those relationships locally and start doing horse trading between them, almost like created like a marketplace where we could basically say, hey, you have this, can I borrow for this? I'll give it back to you and you get some of the credit. And they were like, okay, sure, I'll do that. And that's what really unlocked the productivity across the enterprise. Where we see them not go well is when we don't spend the time up front to understand what the interdependencies are. So when you don't have that semblance of currency and interdependencies, then then it just becomes another meeting to Jess's point where it was a series of updates that people don't find to be necessarily relevant or not. I, I do think there's a lot of value sometime in some exploration that takes place between two senior leaders as a junior leader, listening to how people think out loud around a decision that they're wrestling with was super helpful context if I was trying to figure out how to get something approved, right? Because I'd be like, oh, wow, I didn't realize that was what was top of mind for the boss. Like this thing over here in this other country is weighing on him heavily and, and it potentially has implications on assets or resources. That's context I lacked that if I could have walked in and said, hey, here's what I want to do. And the guy goes, well, no. And then I go, well, why? <laughs> and they go, well, because there's this larger thing at play that you didn't realize. And you go, well, I could have shortened that cycle if I'd had some appreciation for that. Uh, plus, it had it had it had a, a way to help the leaders at the mid level scale and develop. So traditionally, what the military does a good job of is they send people throughout their careers to and from education and training venues, right? So you you make a rank, you go to school for nine months to a year, then you come back, and then you order events. The next rank, you do it again and again and again. Well, you know, if you're a high demand asset. Uh, like a special operations operator, your ability to go take time off to go to school was curtailed dramatically during this fight because there was more requirements than there were bodies. And so the learning that would take place just by hearing leaders talk and think out loud was super helpful to to junior. Like I, I would go just for that because I'd be like, wow, I, that's context I otherwise would never have gotten access to unless I was like an aide de camp or something. Okay. And so it, so it really did a lot to professionalize the force indirectly. So you can use the same mechanism to do one, drive your culture, two, you know, professionalize and develop your, your talent, and then three, increase its overall productivity by improving the quality and the merit of the message. Because what we find in complexity organizations is the hardest thing to do is to stay aligned. Because if things are changing, the priorities are changing. You don't know if what you're working on is productive. And there's nothing worse than like non-productive time. Like I just spent a bunch <laughs> of time building something or coding something or doing something that all of a sudden isn't valued anymore. And you're like, well, gosh, that's that was wasteful. Like I don't, I don't like wasting my time. So if you're hearing how those priorities are shifting and there's a mechanism to do that in a you know much more efficiently than like that telephone game, that to me yeah. was like super helpful. And that's interesting. So what I just heard was it's not just a this not a rebellion slash revolution of middle managers. Uh, this is actually a vehicle to, where senior leadership has a voice where they can model the desired expected behaviors and amplify that uh, across, it must have been a breathtaking scope, right? For maybe even far beyond their you know official area of authority. Uh, am I hearing that right? Yeah, and I, I think there's room for potentially two, two different things, right? But the Keystone form was really a way for you to connect strategy of execution at the operational level for, the, I would say, the, the team. And really what you're doing is you're hacking those layers like I described earlier. Yep. But there were also informal networks that were created, almost like these, these liaison groups that acted almost like APIs that could yeah. connect information flow across the system. Oftentimes, they would be, they would be energized right, or, or, or accelerated based on something they heard in this, this Keystone forum, they'd be like, oh, okay, well, here's a pervasive problem that this group can go spend time on. This informal network of, yep. of thought leaders are dedicating some portion of their mindshare to solving larger problems for the organization, right? So that, that also was taking place. So we had both of those established 
So you had this like basically change agent networks that existed um, <laughs> that would then be tapping into this process that yeah. was that was systemic in, as far as how we operated, right? And those two things together allowed you to basically pivot large organizations effectively. John, John Smart is writing about this in his book. You know, yeah, that sooner safer, happier, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. he, which he's about to release because he did something very similar uh, when he was driving a digital transformation at Barclays, where he created right. these 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 change agents, uh, for lack of a better term. And then when they had a specific thing they need to go focus on, he can mobilize this informal army to basically yes. go attack friction wherever it exists in the organization to unlock productivity. A couple of things. It's amazing to see them referencing John Smart's upcoming book, Sooner, Safer, Happier. Describe all the pioneering work he did when he led the Ways of Working team at Barclays, an organization founded in the year 1634, which actually predates the invention of paper cash. The other thing I wanted to mention here is the dynamics of having this incredibly vibrant ops intelligence call. Jessica mentioned that this was a meeting that people opted into just because it was a source of so much information that you couldn't get anywhere else. It was a way to connect with peers who are solving similar problems that you could collaborate with to better achieve your own objectives. This reminds me of the themes that show up in John Allspot's presentations for many years. Most recently in the DevOps Enterprise London Conference, John Allspot talks about the need to learn from incidents. He asks questions like, are your post-incident reviews being read by people outside of the team? Are they being referenced in code fixes? Do people want to attend these meetings? This reminds me of a comment that Bethany Macri said when she was also at Etsy about how the post-incident reviews, these blameless postmortems, were widely attended because it was one of the best ways to learn about areas outside of your team. In the DevOps handbook, we quoted Randy Schaup, who over the years has been a chief architect at eBay, an engineering director at Google, and is now again a chief architect at eBay and a VP of engineering. In the DevOps handbook, we quote him about his experiences when he was the engineering director for the Google App Engine team, describing how the documentation of postmortem meetings had tremendous value to others in the organization. Quote, as you can imagine, at Google, everything is searchable. All the postmortem documents are in a place where other Googlers can see them. And trust me, when any group has an incident that sounds something similar to that has happened before, these postmortem documents are among the first documents being read and studied. I remember having a conversation where he said, whenever there's a customer impacting at Google, everyone would be looking forward to the postmortem documents being published because everyone loves war stories. My point here is that this is a dynamic where sources of incredible insight, like the global ops intelligence call, like the post-incident reviews, are a source of incredible learning and is a way to spread knowledge across the organization. All right, back to the interview. That is uh Fascinating. So actually, you mentioned one thing about the sort of internal marketplace. So in the book, Team of Teams, one of the stories that really caught my attention was how so many missions were scrubbed at the last minute due to lack of availability of certain scarce resources. And was it like helicopter transport, intelligence gathering platforms? And so my interpretation of this was that that was really kind of the inability of any centralized planning system to know everything and forecast who needed what and you know how do you get a certain scarce thing to who needed it most. So I think you just talked about exactly that, which which is this became almost a, maybe it wasn't the marketplace, but it, it facilitated this horse trading so that the people who needed something the most could get it and, and horse trade their way there. Can, can you talk a little bit more about 
that, uh, that the notion that it came validated that it was really, this became a, a way to augment the planning processes. Um, and it was really mill managers who were needed to get those things to where they need to go most. Yeah, I mean, to me, this was probably the biggest single productivity driver for the enterprise, which was, you know, there was only so much that could be managed centrally when it came to the efficiency of, of decisions on on critical assets and infrastructure. And so uh, in order for you to get the most productivity out of a certain system, there needed to be something much lower, much closer to the problem set, a uh, much lower level leader managers that are basically trying to figure out how to like... T- I would say load balance, for lack of a better term, that asset, that resource to be effective locally. And then, because if you try to do it centrally at the scale that we were operating on, it just wouldn't work. It was, there was just too many competing interests. So, so to me, that was, you know, typically if you think of traditional prioritization of any drill, you know, you've got, a, you've got the higher headquarters that says, okay, these assets are going to be overseas. And then they say, and then there's a compact commander that says, these assets go to these two countries. And they said, these assets go to these three regions in the country and then and then and, and then inside of there it starts to it starts to like go okay well now that's about as low as we can possibly manage it um so what this allowed us to do was i had relationships with the say my, my my delta force counterparts over in in another operating base and because because they were delta and and, and you know delta is the best they had all the best toys right <laughs> and so i knew that you know i had to somehow access or leverage their toys if i was going to be able to like get the most productivity out of my force so I, I put my best operator physically in that person's headquarters and said, hey, you do with him what you want. He's here to basically help provide a, a conduit of information flow between our two organizations, where should you need any of the resources or tools that we have, he's your guy. And if you want to use him for any other stuff, you know, unless, unless it's something <laughs> like morally and ethically wrong, like go, go nuts, right? And um, you know, going back to those leadership skills, th- this high performer was all those things we talked about. He's a humble professional, was highly skilled, competent. He was very self-aware. Like he understood how to like walk in somebody else's shoes. He was extremely disciplined. How so very soon he started to build a relationship, started to establish credibility. They started using him for more and more stuff. And then when I'd say, Hey, I, you know, they, they have this, this collection platform tonight, you know, can we potentially use, you know, that, that resource to put our, you know, our things that we're looking for on this device. So it could try to find those too. Is a room. They say, yeah, yeah, we got some extra capacity here. You can do that. I said, all right, well, I know I'm not gonna be able to keep it. Can you at least give me like a location? And then from there I'll, you know, you can go back to doing whatever it was before. And then I'll operate, I'll assume the risk after that. And so all of a sudden our tempo dramatically unlocked uh, and, and we were able to pick up. And, and I, it's funny. I actually remember going up to the, the higher headquarters to visit one of my other liaisons and the commander of all the forces in Iraq for the special operations unit, he, he was like, hey, Dave, do you guys have stuff on my assets? And I started <laughs> laughing. I was like, well, yes, sir. And he was like, I, I don't understand. Like, um, and he goes, well, I guess it's okay. And, you know, and it was funny because he was like, well, all those ex- that increase in productivity that you're seeing from your centralized force, some of that is we're just, you're counting our stuff, right? We're just giving <laughs> you guys the credit for stuff targets that we're prosecuting that they they don't have the time or they don't want to but they're still like important and let's use a software analogy bugs maybe they're lower priority we were like cleaning up some of that backlog <laughs> of stuff and so in the net productivity uh, increase and then you know eventually as we got better and they got better the quality started to go up and, and all of a sudden you know the capacity is expanding and, and then the whole system's working more efficiently and more effectively so that was that was the magic that sort of goes outside the traditional like I would say prioritization. It was sort of like inside of the sprint cycle. In this case, the day, you know, you had two effectively like think of them like engineers like trading lessons yeah. and practices to help each other out to basically deliver on time. 
And that was, that was, that was, that was the, the magic. Gene here. This is amazing. So Dave just described in phenomenal detail, one of my favorite parts of Team of Teams. This is around page 178, where they talk about liaison officers that they would send to key partners like intelligence agencies. They seem to allude that in the old days, they would send people who weren't fitting into their unit, people on their last rotation before retirement. I think the implication is that they were often sending not the highest performers into these assignments. I quote from the book, however, as these interfaces became increasingly important, we realized the potential for bolstering our relationships with our partner agencies by sending a strong linchpin liaison officer. As it turned out, some of our best liaison officers were also some of our best leaders on the battlefield. We started taking world-class commandos and placed them attired in civilian suits in embassies thousands of miles from the fight because we knew we needed a great relationship with the ambassador and the other interagency leaderships posted there. Everyone hated removing some of our best operators from the battlefield, but we reaped enormous benefits. Our goal was twofold. First, we wanted to get a better sense of how the war looked from our partners' perspectives to enhance our understanding of the fight. We saw one piece of AQI up close and daily, but we knew that they were part of a larger global system of finance, weapons, and ideology about which other people knew much more than we did. Second, we hoped that if the liaisons we sent contributed real value to our partners' operations, it would lay a foundation for the trusting relationships we needed to develop between the nodes of our network. <laughs> so we just heard an amazing example of this, in this case, Dave sending one of his people and embedding them in one of the Delta Force units. Right after that passage in Team of Teams is one of my favorite stories in the book. Describe how a U.S. embassy in a troubled nation finally accepted a posting of a liaison. Apparently, this officer got a very lukewarm reception. Despite being, quote, a walking mass of extroverted energy, habitually upbeat and helpful, they write, at his new post, he was initially granted no access to intelligence and given nothing to do, so Conway volunteered to take out the trash. Each afternoon, he went office to office, gathering refuse and carrying it to the dumpster. When he found out that one embassy colleague loved Chick-fil-A sandwiches, Conway arranged for the next task force delivery to include several in his contents. A man the U.S. government had spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to train as a Navy SEAL was, for three months, a glorified garbage man and a fast food delivery boy. So the story goes, when the situation heated up in the country's capital and the ambassador asked whether he knew anything about force protection and dealing with growing al-Qaeda threat, that person was exactly where he needed to be. I do, he said. That's what I'm trained in, and I can do you one better. Let me make a call. Soon, the entire weight of the task force enterprise was at the disposal of the interagency team at the embassy. Our liaison officer was there to serve the collective mission from trash to terrorism. <laughs> the task force relationship with that country grew tighter nearly instantaneously. A new node in our network became online and began to thrive. I just love that story because it indicates the investment that they were willing to make in these relationships in the hopes that they would eventually pay off. I see so many examples of this in the DevOps community. Infrastructure teams embedding their best people into dev teams to help them figure out how to securely, quickly, reliably promote code into production to collectively help their organizations win in the marketplace. Okay, back to the interview. 
Yeah, we we see this happen a lot within within product lines of manufacturing companies, within value streams of technology companies, where resources are allocated at a particular level, and then everything that's done below that is based on shared consciousness within that group of who needs what when and how they can collectively uh, how they can collectively leverage the resources that have been assigned to them, also collectively to achieve whatever their whatever their mission is, because whoever's allocating the whoever's allocating the budget to that group doesn't know you know, for example, who's going to need a designer on their project and how much, how much of a designer's time is going to need to be used or who's going to need a GPU. They don't, they don't necessarily know those things. So getting those resources assigned centrally and then having those, uh, having those forums to create shared consciousness of who needs what when is a really valuable way to manage those resources effectively. Wow. It's, it's a astonishing. I'm just sort of, kind of connecting some dots. So I have to imagine this happening at scale must be breathtaking to see right? <laughs> that creating these relationships across the scope and breadth of an entire organization, you know, encompassing hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah, it, it, it was pretty amazing. Like if you think about it on a task force level, just in Iraq, so not the whole task force, just Iraq, early days we were doing like two ops a month, basically. Then it got up to like two ops a week. And then by the end, we were doing like 10 ops a night. And so um, same same resources, same assets. I mean, yeah. the quality and intelligence and some of the technology was certainly better uh, over the years. But but the same number, the physical constraint was like number of operators that could go do something. Those numbers didn't dramatically change over that time period. So so, um, and then more importantly, the actual quality of the operation went up as well. So like casualties went down, success rates went up. All those things started dramatically improve because of this. The culture sort of enabled and encouraged this level of. Of, of synergy and collaboration. And then the, the last thing I'll say is it had dramatic effects on innovation and creativity, right? So what it, what it did was localize problems that were happening. The fact that you were cross-leveling those in real time, and it was tied to understanding strategic direction and intent, you could start to better, faster create, you know, product services, offerings that, that were aligned with where the organization was trying to go to. You know, oftentimes we'll see, we'll see companies, you know, invest a lot of money in, in like third parties to come up with strategic plans based on, you know, their deep expertise in a certain domain. And there's value there, certainly. But uh, increasingly, as things are changing, uh, we believe that you, you got to emerge the solution, you know, quickly and get like real-time feedback. And like back to that analogy earlier, the operations will start driving the strategy, the intelligence. And so if you have a mechanism to connect that, all of a sudden the whole org starts going faster. So what it feels like is like you just a, a lot of winning, right? You're winning locally and you're winning at scale. And that that is when people really start to get energized. I, you know, it's funny that looking at high-performing teams and culture, it's amazing how much winning will do to solve like other problems, right? If you start having success, <laughs> a lot of the other stuff that you know bothers you tends to go away. And so this was sort of creating some of these like micro successes and that, and as they added up, it started to have pretty significant effects. So if you look at any one level, you're like, oh, it's just marginally more productive. But then when you step back and you go, wow, the effect is like a 10x improvement at this scale on how things are going. And that can have decisive effects for, for organizations operating in competitive environments. And is that what you mean when you say operations starts dictating strategy? In other words, people sense that there is a pattern of winning and that <laughs> that, the, that really becomes, uh, raises the question of like, how do we win more at, you know, the strategic levels? Is that what you mean? Yeah, I mean, th- think of it like launching an MVP, right? So so when you launch an initial product, for us, that was us going on an operation that night, right? We go on an operation night, we, that was our minimal viable product for the night. And we would collect information from that, from that experience and that would then go back into the feedback loop that would inform the next one. And what, so that was happening organically inside our unit. The magic of the team of teams was connecting that learning across all the other learnings that were taking place and then trying to disseminate 
which of those were applicable so that you mm. could rapidly move them across. And that's what like all of a sudden started to make us go much faster, more effectively. So that's what I'm saying. My operations started driving intelligence or strategy is because what we were finding on the battlefield was dictating the next, the next target, right? We'd say, okay, we yeah. learned this. And based on this, here's the next thing that we need to go do differently to solve it, right? So it's no different than me launching the MVP, getting feedback and saying, what well, the consumers value the most out of this experience was this. This pace can still be optimized better. Go focus on that. You're going to get a higher return right. uh, than you would on somewhere else, something else. And if I hear you correctly, uh, that, that pattern of winning can inform strategy or even become the strategy in, in the extreme. Yeah, my, that, that was my sense is that all of a sudden you get like that, that intrinsic and intrinsic motivation of feeling like you did something successful and then seeing that success applied and scaled to a larger uh, enterprise's outcomes and desires, all of a sudden it makes you feel connected in ways that you know before you may have felt isolated, which it just improves overall morale, you know, and if I just, which then reinforces you want to put more time and energy and motivation yep. into something. And so it, it has this like this flywheel effect. Gene here. I just want to take a moment to concretize what Dave and Jessica just said. When success at the execution level starts to influence or even drive strategy. You know, I can totally see that happening. If you are starting to create successful outcome by creating a dynamic of learning, what is initially an island of success will keep getting larger. If those successes can be connected with the largest and most important goals and objectives of the entire organization, I think one can quickly see how this effort would have larger and larger influence on the rest of the organization. Especially if the other parts of the organization are trapped in a culture of compliance, a culture of just following the plan. A more dynamic culture of rapid experimentation and learning will, or at least should, keep having an ever-growing impact and level of mindshare from senior leaders. As Mike Nygaard said in his first IdealCast interview, this does require that we double down on the winners as opposed to force-feeding the losers. In other words, all too often, there is this unfortunate dynamic where the projects that actually get funding are the ones that are late and losing, as opposed to the teams who are actually winning. And those are the teams we should be investing in because they have identified a potential breakthrough. Okay, I can't overstate just how grateful and amazing it has been to talk with Dave Silverman and Jessica Reif about the philosophies that went into one of my favorite books, Team of Teams, as well as hearing so many of these stories that further demonstrate the lessons in the book. So believe it or not, I only got through half of the questions I had for them, so we will be continuing this interview in another IdealCast episode. But before that, you will be hearing Dave Silverman's amazing presentation that he gave at the 2020 DevOps Enterprise Summit London Virtual Conference. He talks about many more of these lessons that he learned in the Team of Teams experience, which I know will resonate with anyone attempting to transform their own organizations. In the meantime, Dave, Jess, can you please tell everyone how they can reach you and problems that you'd love to work on? Uh, you can reach us at crossly.com. I'm jessica.reif, R-E-I-F, at crossly.com, and that's C-R-O-S-S-L-E-A-D. And Dave is david at crossly.com. Uh, the types of problems that we enjoy uh, working with the most are really the ones that we talked about in this episode. How do you operate more effectively as a as a network of teams, and how do you address some of the challenges that come with uh, working on complex work in the context of a of a complex system? Yeah, I, I think Jess just nailed it. I mean, we we I'm passionate. We're passionate about multi-team systems, specifically how organizations communicate and make decisions in environments that are necessitate uh, flexibility 
and adaptability. That that that's always been sort of my passion. I have a bias towards high performing organizations that are committed to continuous improvement because I think without that, it, you know, it, it's it's sort of tough. And so helping instilling that culture and then driving driving the, the mechanisms that reinforce those behaviors is what I think we spend most of our time with customers and clients uh, spent talking about. So crosslead.com and david at crosslead.com. Thank you both. If you enjoyed this episode, I know you'll enjoy those two upcoming episodes as well. See you then. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Up next will be Dr. Steven Spears' DevOps Enterprise Summit presentations, both from 2019 and 2020, where he talks about the need to create a rapid learning dynamic, as well as how to create them. The 2019 presentation talks about many of the case studies we talked about today, but in more detail. And in 2020, he talks about one of the most remarkable and historic examples of creating a dynamic learning organization at scale, which was in the U.S. Navy at the end of the 19th century at the confluence of two unprecedented changes. One was in the underlying technologies which you found in ships and in the strategic mission that they were in service of. As usual, I'll add my reflections and reactions to those presentations. If you enjoyed today's interview of Steve, I know you'll enjoy both of those presentations as well.